Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and before we begin today's episode, I wanted to talk about something important. I know it's been a while since the show was updated, and quite a lot of you have reached out to me wondering when the next episode would be released. I've mostly been very busy at my job. I moved into a new role, which requires a lot of learning and growth, but I've also been dealing with a great loss. On June 9th, my beloved grandmother, Ama, passed away at the age of 87. Ama is the person responsible for my love of France, and without her, this show wouldn't exist. She toured France as a young woman after World War II, and she went back to visit many times when I was a child. When I prepared to move to Paris at age 18, Ama was over the moon. She presented me with one of my most treasured gifts, a gold fleur-de-lis necklace in honor of my move, and she gave me all of her guidebooks, even the ancient, battered textbook she'd used to learn French so many years ago. So, Ama, this episode is for you. That city took my breath away. After her first fateful meal in Rouen, Julia and Paul finally arrived in Paris, and the first impressions made that day would fix in Julia's memory for the rest of her life. I couldn't get over how gorgeous everything looked. The beauty of the buildings and the Seine and the bridges and the monuments, the majesty of it all, and the people. So chic, yet unusual, so so indescribably French. I couldn't understand anything anyone said to me, but the way they said it. The Paris Julia encountered was far from the dazzling city of light made so famous by Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway. World War II left behind piles of rubble, shredded infrastructure, and food rationing. Julia didn't mind in the least, however, and she decided to get to know her new home one restaurant at a time. Paul wrote soon after their arrival, Julia wants to spend the rest of her life right here, eating soul, drinking wine, and looking at Paris. Well, who doesn't, Paul? Her memoirs from this first year are nothing but page after page of restaurants and memorable meals, each better than the last. Despite Paul's meager civil servant salary, the pair became regulars at a dozen perfect little neighborhood joints, serving up the best that French bistro dining had to offer. Classic dishes perfectly prepared with enough butter to stop the heart of a horse. From her small, eccentric apartment in the Rue de l'Université, or as Julia called it, the Rue de Lou, Julia quickly set out to make new friends, learn the language, and most importantly, find something to do while biding her time between meals. When it became clear that the two of them would never have children, Julia struggled to find something to do with herself while Paul was away at the office. There were only so many times you could clean a tiny apartment. Julia tried her hand at a number of different hobbies, each one more useless than the last. My personal favorite was her attempt at millinery. As one biographer wrote, 
After a few lessons, Julia still felt indifferent towards hats in general, which is both a marvelous phrase and a good summary of my own position on the matter. In August 1949, Julia turned 37 years old, and Paul gifted her a copy of the Le Rousse Gastronomique, which is essentially the Encyclopedia Britannica of French food. With all of her friends out of town on their traditional August vacances, Julia curled up with the thousand-page tome, turning the pages with wonder in her eyes. At this moment, after enduring the weeks of hat making and bridge and other failed pastimes, Paul suggested the obvious: why not learn to cook? While Julia's enthusiasm grew at once, the idea was more than a little dangerous. For decades, Julia had terrorized friends and family with awful attempts at dinner, and she'd never really seemed to improve. But the hunger was there. Julia wanted to learn to cook, really cook, like the professional chefs at the bistros and restaurants she loved. And for any serious aspiring cook, there was only one place to turn: Le Cordon Bleu. It only took one class before Julia realized she'd made a terrible mistake. Her classmates at this vaunted, legendary institution—two bored housewives. Their lesson plan: how to peel garlic, how to prepare a hard-boiled egg. This was hardly the serious education Julia had in mind. This was the 1949 equivalent of a $20 Groupon workshop. After arguing strenuously with the very judgy, very skeptical director, Julia finagled a spot in Le Cordon Bleu's year-long course for professional restaurateurs in training. The professional restaurateurs in her class were 11 GIs, tough guys who didn't really appreciate a lady invading their space. But Julia was a woman who'd spent World War II in a bunk bed in the middle of Burma, surrounded a thousand to one by men. It would take a lot more than a "No Girls Allowed" sign to scare her away. Luckily, Julia's professor was the best mentor imaginable. Chef Bunyard is the unsung hero of this story. A large, jolly man who'd spent 65 years in kitchens, great and small, from tiny bistros to the great Carlton Hotel in London, where he'd worked with the great Escoffier himself. Chef Bunyard was professional, patient, and passionate about his work. Julia was swept away on a river of knowledge. What are the four bases of a sauce? What are the sauces to be made with them? What is a fricassee? How do you glaze an onion? What's the difference between crème anglaise, crème caramel, and a pâte de crème? Every day, Julia would appear for duty in the dark, cramped basement of Le Cordon Bleu, chopping and slicing and dicing her way through that day's assignment, following along with Chef Bunyard's instructions while trying not to slice off a finger. Most importantly, Julia recalled. I had to keep my ears open and make sure to ask questions, even if they were dumb questions. When I didn't understand something, Chef Bunyard would break down every recipe into its most fundamental elements, then guide the students through the entire preparation until they'd produce something respectable. 
As soon as class was over, Julia would head right out to the market to buy ingredients and recreate the dish at home. To Paul's amazement and probably a little secret relief, Julia's cookery, as he wrote to his brother, is actually improving. The work was hard, with months of burned eggs, collapsed souffles, and sliced fingers along the way. But under Chef Bunyard's careful tutelage, Julia began to understand the fundamental techniques underlying French cuisine. Most importantly, she learned to care about her dish, to provide it with attention and respect. You never forget a beautiful thing that you have made," said Chef Bunyard. Even after you eat it, it stays with you, always. By the end of the year, Julia's entire world was devoted to cooking, and so was her kitchen. Our poor little kitchen is bursting at the seams," Paul lamented. Pots, pans, vessels, sieves, measuring rods, scales, thermometers, mortars, timing clocks, choppers, grinders, knives, openers, pestles, spoons, ladles, jars, skewers, forks, bottles, boxes, bags, weights, needles, graters, strings, rolling pins, mullers, frying pans. She's got a whip for making sauces, a needle for making roasts, a frying pan used only for crepes. A copper sugar boiler, stirring paddles made of maple wood, tart rings, and a whole gamut of flat, long-handled copper pot lids. As someone whose boyfriend threw up his hands when I brought a seven-quart food processor into our tiny studio apartment kitchen, I understand, Julia. I understand. But along with seventeen kinds of whisks, Julia had also acquired a sense of competency. And more importantly, a deep and abiding passion. I had always been content, Julia later wrote, to live a butterfly life of fun, with hardly a care in the world. But at the Cordon Bleu and in the markets and restaurants of Paris, I suddenly discovered that cooking was a rich and layered and endlessly fascinating subject. The best way to describe it is to say that. I fell in love with French food. The tastes, the processes, the history, the endless variations, the rigorous discipline, the creativity, the wonderful people, the equipment, the rituals. What fun! What a revelation! How terrible it would have been had Rue de Lou come with a good cook. How magnificent to find my life's calling at long last. After her time at Le Cordon Bleu, Julia Child faced a new challenge. Having developed into a truly skilled chef, what was she to do with her talents? It was 1951. There was no such thing as a celebrity chef, and Julia wasn't particularly interested in working in the food industry or as someone's home cook. I wanted to make a career of it, she said. But what kind of a career could she make? That spring, Julia and Paul attended a swanky party thrown by a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. It was a rather thrilling affair, with over a hundred guests, both American and French, swirling around socializing in an enormous room. Halfway through the night, the party host seized Julia's elbow. 
there was another woman attending the party who was just as mad about French cooking as Julia, and he wanted them to meet. It would turn out to be the perfect person arriving at the perfect place at the perfect moment. Simone Beck Fischbache, known as Simka, is the kind of historical type that I like to call a fascinating woman. As a child, she was baptized with a few drops of Benedictine liqueur, which her family had invented in the 19th century, and which kept her family rolling in piles of money. Simka had been raised by nannies in a chateau complete with turrets and stables of horses before being shipped off to boarding school. Simka was impressive in every way. She was tall. She was beautiful, and she had personal flair. On her first date with the man who would become her second husband, Simka kept the sunroof open in her car, despite the fact that it was the middle of winter, because she needed room for the enormous feather pinned to her beret. Simka had an instinct for cooking right from the start, and she thrilled at throwing enormous dinner parties and spending long hours in her chateau's exquisite kitchen. Sometimes that knack for the kitchen paid off in unexpected ways. For example, when her husband was captured by Nazis during World War II, Simka smuggled messages to him by sewing them inside prunes, which were then sent to the prison camp. In her 30s, Simka, like Julia, took lessons at Le Cordon Bleu, only to roll her eyes at the simple cooking one-on-one -on -one lessons aimed at housewives who didn't know how to boil an egg. Where Julia fought for the right to train alongside future professional cooks, Simka simply paid the great chef Henri Paul Payaprat for private cooking lessons. Simka was a bit like a European counterpart to Julia, raised in unimaginable wealth and privilege, well educated with nothing to do, and antsy for a worthy challenge and the promise of true accomplishment. At once, Simka realized that Julia was both a kindred spirit and the potential key to her great passion project—a French cookbook for Americans. For years, Simka and her friend Louisette Bertol had written down heirloom recipes from their own family archives, their well-thumbed cookbook collections, and from their own minds—the recipes that they'd been taught by their own mothers and grandmothers. Simka and Louisette had been working on the project for years, but it never really amounted to much. The collection was a disorganized mess, and anyway, it lacked the American touch. The last publisher wrote to Simka with a bit of advice alongside the inevitable rejection letter: Get an American who is crazy about French cooking to collaborate with you, somebody who both knows French food and can still see and explain things with an American viewpoint in mind. That night at the party, Simka felt at once that she'd found her American. Within a few weeks, Simka and Julia formed a fast friendship. Here, at last, Julia found a woman who understood her passion for French cooking. 
Simka and Julia spent hours sitting around the kitchen of the Rue de Lou, drinking tea, cooking up lunches, and trying to figure out how to put their considerable talents to good use. By the fall of 1951, an idea had taken shape. Julia, Simka, and Simka's cookbook collaborator, Louisette, would open up a cooking school for Americans in Paris. They'd call themselves Le Trois Gourmandes, or as Julia liked to translate it, the Three Hearty Eaters. On January 23, 1952, Le Trois Gourmandes held their first class. The three instructors were nervous and feeling underprepared. Julia had advertised their school in a local newspaper, but they were taken aback when three American women responded right away, money in fist and wanting to start, as Julia put it. Julia, Simka, and Louisette didn't feel as though they'd worked out the kinks, but as Julia recalled, is anyone ever completely ready for a new undertaking, especially in a profession like cooking, where there are at least a hundred ways to cook a potato? The structure was simple. Class was held in Julia's kitchen every Tuesday and Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., at which point the class would sit down to eat the lunch they'd just prepared. Right from the start, the gaps in the teacher's preparation showed. They were always talking over one another, unsure of when each teacher should talk. There were differences in style and precision. Louisette dealt in pinches and dashes, when Julia and Simka dealt in cups and teaspoons. Crucially, Simka and Louisette struggled to understand the cultural differences between themselves and the American housewives taking their classes. Julia always groaned at the two women's inattention to the processes of shopping or cleaning up, because, as the French women assumed, surely the servants would take care of that. I think that most histories of Julia Child give short shrift to these cooking classes, as though they were merely a way for Julia, Simka, and Louisette to gain exposure while focusing on their real work of developing a cookbook. But at this point in time, Julia was still only a consultant on the cookbook project, which was no more than a little collection of recipes. And at this point in time, none of the three women had honed the most important skill after cooking, which is needed to produce a cookbook, the art of teaching. It was through the cooking classes, with their gaps in knowledge, their misunderstandings, their trials, their errors, that Julia, Simka, and Louisette learned how to impart knowledge to others, learned how to cross the cultural gap between French cooks and American students, learned how to be precise and meticulous, and learned how to make instructions feel approachable, useful, and fun. Soon, everyone was an enthusiastic supporter of the classes. Not only the students, who soon recruited more hungry housewives eager to take lessons from these curious women, but friends and family as well. Paul raced home by 1 p.m. to enjoy the lunch, and his guest appearances became star attractions as he taught the class about wine pairings while filling everyone's glasses from his own collection. Word was out on the street. As Julia remembered in her memoirs, 
The darling chicken man on La Rue Claire gave us a special price and was most anxious to give our students a demonstration on how to choose a fine bird. The butcher felt the same way about his meats. Perhaps the only fan who left the classes disappointed was Minette, Julia's cat, who never quite got as many leftovers as she really wished. After a year and a half of cooking and teaching together, Louisette and Semka realized that Julia was no longer just a useful resource for the two of them as they compiled their cookbook, no longer just a companion cook in their school. Julia was the linchpin, the key to their success, and the one with enough gumption and determination to see the cookbook project through to the end. Thus it was that in the fall of 1952, the two women shared their manuscript with Julia for the first time. In fact, Julia wrote, I did not like it at all. As Julia summarized in her later memoirs, the cookbook drafted by Simca and Louisette was a big jumble of recipes like any other cookbook. Their language wasn't American. Most of the directions struck me as needlessly complicated where they should be clear and concise. Yet Julia was inspired by the idea of a cookbook explaining la cuisine bourgeoisie to American home cooks, and she accepted the challenge of taking charge of such a mammoth project. Julia understood at once the potential of this cookbook, and she knew that she could steer it in the right direction. I had come to cooking late in life and knew from first-hand experience how frustrating it could be to try to learn from badly written recipes. I was determined that our cookbook would be clear and informative and accurate, just as our teaching strove to be. Soon, Julia had developed three golden rules to guide their project in the months and years to come. Number one. Stand up for your opinions as an equal partner in this enterprise. Number two, keep the book French. Number three, follow the scientific method respecting your own careful findings after having studied the findings and recommendations of other authorities. Work with exact measurements, temperatures, etc., and, once having established a method, stick to it religiously unless you find it not satisfactory. Before long, the three cooks had established their own individual role in the cookbook's production. First, there was Simka, the workhorse. Simka was extremely professional, with infinite resources and time at her disposal. Julia noted that Simka could put in five solid hours of bookery a day, no matter what happened. Testing hundreds of recipes, Simka's precise mind translated the traditional French cuisine and techniques she felt in her bones into standard, methodical recipes. Critically, Simka pushed back against Julia's adaptations for American readers if she felt they strayed too far from the soul of French cooking. In other words, as instructed in Julia's rule number two, Simka kept the cookbook French. Louisette was the figurehead of the whole project, the aspiration, the archetype. As Julia observed, Louisette was everyone's dream of the perfect French woman. In every telling of the cookbook story, 
I feel that Louisette gets the short end of the stick, and it's easy to see why. Louisette was flighty and often distracted by the drama of her constant romantic failures. She didn't have an exact or meticulous bone in her body, and she didn't have the focus or drive of Simca and Julia. Paul dismissed her as a charming little nincompoop who couldn't be counted on for the real drudgery involved in making the cookbook. But Louisette was the essential backbone of the project. She was that magical, mysterious figure of French cooking, the housewife who just knows deep in her bones how to whip up an incredible, sumptuous feast, the woman who just has a knack of making everything taste just right. It's easy to dismiss Louisette, but to do so is to miss the point. In a way, Julia and Simka's entire purpose and project was to transform the average American housewife into a Louisette. Finally, there was Julia, the executive director. Julia maintained the guiding vision of what the cookbook could and should be. Julia was the sheriff, always monitoring everybody's work to maintain a high standard of scientific accuracy in the development and testing of the recipes. Julia rejected the dogmatic tendencies of Simca and Louisette to trust such and such authority on French cooking just because they were an authority. No, Julia put every recipe through the ringer to make sure it actually worked. And her work wasn't over once the recipe itself was perfected. Julia typed up the manuscripts, she edited and organized the cookbook, and she sent out drafts to trusted friends and family for feedback. Julia's trickiest job? Figuring out which ingredients were available to American cooks and which substitutions were acceptable. In one example, the three cooks struggled to figure out why Simka's cherished pie crust recipe kept failing. Eventually, the three realized that French flour and American flour was different. French flour was sold with all of its natural fats included, while American flour was processed to extend its shelf life. So Julia went back to the drawing board of every pastry recipe the three had developed, making sure the ratio of American flour to fat produced the right results. Simca and Louisette had no idea what kinds of items were available on American shelves. And Julia knew that any reader encountering a long list of unfamiliar ingredients would just close the cookbook out of frustration. Julia relished the research involved in such a task. Did American markets carry creme fraiche? If not, would sour cream work? In 2018, it's difficult to understand just how limited grocery store offerings were in the early 1950s. Did American housewives have access to leeks? What about shallots? Julia convinced her sister-in-law back in America to sneak into local butchers and take photographs of all the local cuts of meat, which were quite different from the cuts offered by French butchers. The three women poured over the grainy black and white photographs, trying to figure out what American housewives could ask for instead of lardons or kidneys. This zeal for the art of substitution would be put to the test as Julia approached the next chapter of the cookbook and a new, unexpected chapter of her life. On his 51st birthday, Paul received news he'd been hoping for, wrapped up in news he'd been dreading. 
he was receiving a promotion at last, and a transfer to Marseille. His and Julia's time in Paris was over. It was the end of a golden period of Julia's life. It meant the end of her cooking classes, the end of her weekly meetings with Simca and Louisette to work through the cookbook. It meant saying goodbye to her life in Paris, and worst of all, saying goodbye to her cherished, painstakingly developed kitchen in the Rue de Lou. Nevertheless, it was a major promotion for Paul, and Julia didn't hesitate. They'd simply have to make do in Marseille. On March 2, 1953, Julia and Paul rolled into Marseille and managed to unpack their belongings into their tiny hotel just in time for supper. With, as Julia put it, our minds open, hope in our hearts, and with our taste buds poised for new flavors, the new arrivals strolled around Marseille in search of a good meal. Marseille was overwhelming, chaotic, noisy, overflowing with people from all over the world pulling into port. Such a feeling of life and movement, gurgling, crowded streets, wonderful overflowing markets, great, hearty, howling, laughing vendors. In the 1950s, Marseille was unknown territory, even to Parisians, who considered the city a backwater full of mobster types. There was some truth to that. Julia said, about half the men looked like they'd modeled themselves on Hollywood movie gangsters. But she was determined to soak up what she called a rich broth of vigorous, emotional, uninhibited life, or as Paul put it, a bouillabaisse of a city. In fact, it was bouillabaisse which would spur Julia's recommitment to the cookbook project and help her turn her new city into a home. In a way, Julia's move to Marseille couldn't have come at a better time. In Paris, Julia, Simca, and Louisette had just finished their chapters on sauces and soups and were ready to turn their sights on the next chapter when Paul received word about his transfer to Marseille. After securing a new apartment and unpacking the endless boxes of cooking equipment in her new kitchen, Julia turned her attention towards the newest chapter and realized she was in a perfect position to tackle the subject, because where better than a port city to study the art of fish? In 1953, most Americans didn't eat fresh fish. Even if you were lucky enough to have access to fresh fish, Americans rarely ventured beyond maybe breading it or frying it. Julia's own childhood fish forays were pretty uninspiring. We had broiled fish for Friday dinners, pan-fried trout when we camped in the High Sierras, and boiled salmon on the 4th of July. If Julia knew the extent to which most Americans in 1953 were depending on fish sticks, she might have given up on the whole project. But Julia remembered that sole meunier in Rouen which had changed her life, and so she forged ahead. Where better to enter the world of French fish than the beloved Marseille Bouillabaisse? As you may recall from episode 25, Bouillabaisse is a fisherman's stew composed of garlic, herbs, onions, tomatoes, and the catch of the day. The exact composition of a bouillabaisse depends on what's in season and what's in the boat. And what was in the boat would be pretty hard to translate to American audiences. 
Vescas, Grandon, and Congre, aka Scorpionfish, Sea Robin, and Eel. But Julia devoted herself to what she called piscatory research, writing to the U.S. Department of Fisheries and its French equivalent with endless questions. I like to imagine the lonely deputy fish coordinator, yes, that was a real title, passionate about fish but surrounded by bureaucrats, opening a passionate handwritten letter from Julia Child asking the questions the coordinator had been waiting to be asked his entire life. The deputies were overjoyed by her questions, and they provided more information about fish than any human being really ought to have. My grandmother's beloved sand dabs could be translated in French to the carolet, but also limande, calimande, or plié. And even if she got the names translated properly, most French fish just didn't exist off of American coasts. While Julia continued her piscatory research, she and Paul grew to love their new apartment. Their kitchen window looked over the legendary and historic port at night, Paul and Julia stayed up late, working to the soundtrack of the tugboats chortling below their window. The heat and the water pressure and the elevator were all unreliable, but it didn't matter. The apartment was still beginning to feel like home. Paul was working 14-hour days, running all over Marseille so frequently that Julia observed the pale Parisian skin on Paul's bald head was bronzed and parmentized from the wind and sun. At home, Julia was working in earnest, spending her days ruthlessly running every recipe through its paces, writing to Simca and Louisette with questions and commentary, making infinitesimal adjustments to recipes, scribbling down notes, and then scribbling more notes in the margins of the notes. Julia typed out copies of her recipes, sent them to her sister and a handful of other trusted friends with a stern, top secret, stamped across the top, terrified that her hard work would be stolen by another publisher. She ran through endless variations on bouillabaisse, straining out the vegetables one day, leaving them in the next, running the vegetables through a food mill the day after that. By the end of 1953, Julia's five-hour workday had ballooned into a 10- or 12-hour workday. And the manuscript was ballooning too. The cookbook now stretched into 700 pages. But the work was paying off. Julia had secured an advance from a new professional publisher, and she was feeling immensely proud of their creation for the first time knew before how good the book would be, but never felt it quite this way before, she wrote. Masterly, calm, collected, completely basic, and as exciting as a novel to read. Julia and Paul were in peak form, throwing themselves into their work, producing results they were proud of, looking forward to the future. Then, they received a piece of devastating news. Once again, Paul was being transferred to Germany. Paul and Julia were shocked. They were numb. It felt like only yesterday they'd unpacked their belongings. As Julia wrote in her memoirs, one should ideally have the attitude that I am my country's creature and be willing to go anywhere, anytime to serve. But after the travails of the last few years, I had lost that noble esprit de corps. 
The two considered going home to the United States, but they'd been warned by friends and colleagues of Joseph McCarthy's wretched house of un-American activities, and they were scared that they'd be denounced as traitors. They even considered resigning from the Foreign Service to stay in France. But what would Paul do in the meantime? For what felt like the millionth time, Paul and Julia packed up their things and prepared to move. But they did so with heavy hearts. The realization that we were really and truly leaving France was painful, Julia wrote in her memoirs. I had been here over five years. I was fluent in the language. I could shop like a Frenchman and cook like one too. I could even drive like one if I had to. But a transfer was a transfer, and on October 24, 1954, Julia and Paul arrived in the Plittersdorf neighborhood in the city of Bonn. They were miserable. Bonn wasn't anything like their previous assignments. Rather than being surrounded by sophisticated, educated civil servants, Paul and Julia were surrounded by American GIs who just weren't interested in fine food, fine wine, fine art, fine discussion, or anything related to their surroundings. Julia was furious at sad old Plittersdorf, where Americans only talked to one another and refused to learn anything about the surrounding German culture. I felt that if we were going to be in Germany, then we should live amongst the Germans. But this wasn't German at all. We could have been in any town, USA. With few friendships or social obligations to distract her, Julia retreated into her work. She'd wrapped up fish and eggs in Marseille, and she was ready to tackle the next chapter, chicken. Just as before, Julia threw herself at the challenge, determined to start with a perfect, unassailable recipe for that classic foundational recipe, the roasted chicken. What kind of chicken was best? Squabs, broilers, fryers, capons, old hens, roosters? What kinds of birds would be available to American shoppers? How could shoppers select the best kind of chicken? Once Julia had mastered the roast chicken, she moved right ahead to the endless chicken dishes which needed to be perfected. She was grateful for the work, which kept her away from her disappointing neighbors. So many U.S. Army are depressing, she wrote to a friend, but I got quite a bit of working and cooking in, so it was not wasted. Finally, in September 1956, Julia and Paul celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary with a romantic getaway. One evening, as the two were dining out, Paul paid tribute to his wife, the veritable goddess that he found as astonishingly beautiful as ever. In yet another moment where Paul Child makes me swoon, he looked into Julia's eyes and he thanked her, saying, You've made quite a sacrifice for my career. Then, Paul gave Julia an anniversary gift she never expected. Once again, Paul was being transferred back to the United States. Home! After eight years in Europe, Julia and Paul were finally heading home. Home to friends, home to a brand new kitchen, home to the American audience she'd been trying to imagine for the past four years. This is just about the right time, from the point of view of the book, to be coming home, she wrote. On November 12, 1956, almost eight years exactly after their first arrival in Rouen, 
Julia and Paul boarded an ocean liner and sailed home. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. As a thank you for everyone's patience, I'm releasing two episodes at once, so please continue on to the next episode where we'll pick up the tale of the great Julia Child.